Welcome to Emily Rose Meditations. I'm your host, Emily, and today we'll be sitting with chapter 12 of book one of The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. So find a comfortable seat, take a deep breath, and make your heart ready to receive these words. This night and purgation of the desire, a happy one for the soul, works in it so many benefits and blessings, although to the soul, as we have said, it seems rather that blessings are taken away from it, that even as Abraham made a great feast when he weaned his son Isaac, even so there is joy in heaven because God is now taking this soul from its swaddling clothes, setting it down from his arms, making it to walk upon its feet, and likewise taking from it the milk of the breast and the soft and sweet food proper to children, and making it to eat bread with crust, and to begin to enjoy the food of robust persons. This food, in these aridities and this darkness of sense, is now given to the spirit, which is dry and emptied, of all the sweetness of sense. And this food is the infused contemplation whereof we have spoken. This is the first and principal benefit caused by this arid and dark night of contemplation, the knowledge of oneself and of one's misery. For besides the fact that all the favors which God grants to the soul are habitually granted to them and wrapped in this knowledge, these aridities and this emptiness of the faculties, compared with the abundance which the soul experienced aforetime and the difficulty which it finds in good works, make it recognize its own lowliness and misery which in the time of its prosperity it was unable to see. Of this there is a good illustration in the book of Exodus, where God, wishing to humble the children of Israel and desiring that they should know themselves, commanded them to take away and strip off the festal garments and adornments wherewith they were accustomed to adorn themselves in the wilderness, saying, Now from henceforth, strip yourselves of festal ornaments and put on everyday working dress, that ye may know what treatment ye deserve. This is as though he had said, Inasmuch as the attire that ye wear, being proper to a festival and rejoicing, causes you to feel less humble concerning yourselves than ye should, put off from you this attire in order that henceforth, seeing yourselves clothed with vileness, ye may know that ye merit no more, and ye may know who ye are. Wherefore the soul knows the truth, that it knew not at first, concerning its own misery. For at the time when it was clad as a festival and found in God much pleasure, consolation, and support, it was somewhat more satisfied and contented since it thought itself to some extent to be serving God. It is true that such souls may not have this idea explicitly in their minds, but some suggestion of it at least is implanted in them 
by the satisfaction which they find in their pleasant experiences. But now that the soul has put on its other and working attire, that of aridity and abandonment, and now that its first lights have turned into darkness, it possesses these lights more truly in this virtue of self-knowledge, which is so excellent and so necessary, considering itself now as nothing and experiencing no satisfaction in itself, for it sees that it does nothing of itself, neither can do anything. And the smallness of this self-satisfaction, together with the soul's affliction at not serving God, is considered and esteemed by God as greater than all the consolations which the soul formerly experienced, and the works which it wrought, however great they were, inasmuch as they were the occasion of many imperfections and ignorances. And from this attire of aridity proceed, as from their font of and source of self-knowledge, not only the things which we have described already, but also the benefits which we shall now describe, and many more, which will have to be admitted. In the first place, the soul learns to commune with God with more respect and more courtesy, such as a soul must ever observe in converse with the Most High. These it knew not in its prosperous times of comfort and consolation, for that comforting favor which it experienced made its craving for God somewhat bolder than was fitting and discourteous and ill-considered. Even so did it happen to Moses when he perceived that God was speaking to him, blinded by that pleasure and desire without further consideration that he would have made bold to go to him if God had not commanded him to stay and put off his shoes. By this incident, we are shown the respect and discretion in detachment of desire wherewith a man is to commune with God. When Moses had obeyed in this matter, he became so discreet and so attentive that the scripture says that he not only did not make bold to draw near to God, but that he dared not even look at him. For having taken off the shoes of his desires and pleasures, he became very conscious of his wretchedness in the sight of God, as befitted one who was about to hear the word of God. Even so, likewise, the preparation which God granted to Job in order that he might speak with him consisted not in those delights and glories which Job himself reports that he was wont to have in his God, but in leaving him naked upon a dunghill, abandoned and even persecuted by his friends, filled with anguish and bitterness and the earth covered with worms. And then the Most High God, he that lifts up the poor man from the dunghill, was pleased to come down and speak with him there, face to face, revealing to him the depths and heights of his wisdom in a way that he had never done in the time of his prosperity. And here we must note another excellent benefit, which is there in this night and aridity of the desire of sense since we have had occasion to speak of it. It is that, in this dark night of the desire, to the end that the words of the prophet may be fulfilled, namely, thy light shall shine in the darkness, God will enlighten the soul, giving it knowledge, 
not only of its lowliness and wretchedness, as we have said, but likewise of the greatness and excellence of God. For, as well as quenching the desires and pleasures and attachments of sense, he cleanses and frees the understanding that it may understand the truth. For pleasure of sense and desire, even though it be for spiritual things, darkens and obstructs the spirit. And furthermore, that straightness and aridity of sense enlightens and quickens the understanding, as says Isaiah. Vexation makes us to understand how the soul that is empty and disencumbered, as is necessary for his divine influence, is instructed supernaturally by God in his divine wisdom through this dark and arid night of contemplation, as we have said. And this instruction God gave, not in those first sweetnesses and joys. This is very well explained by the same prophet Isaiah, where he says, Whom shall God teach his knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand the hearing? To those, he says, that are weaned from the milk and drawn away from the breasts. Here it is shown that the first milk of spiritual sweetness is no preparation for this divine influence, neither is there preparation in attachment to the breast of delectable meditations, belonging to the faculties of sense, which gave the soul pleasure. Such preparation consists rather in the lack of the one and the withdrawal from the other. Inasmuch as, in order to listen to God, the soul needs to stand upright and to be detached with regard to affection and sense, even as the prophet says concerning himself in these words, I will stand upon my watch, this is that detachment of desire, and I will make firm my step, that is, I will not meditate with sense, in order to contemplate, that is, in order to understand that which may come to me from God. So, we have now arrived at this, that from this arid night, there first of all comes self-knowledge, whence, as from a foundation, rises this other knowledge of God, for which cause St. Augustine said to God, Let me know myself, Lord, and I shall know thee. For, as the philosophers say, one extreme can be well known by another. And in order to prove more completely how efficacious is this night of sense, with its aridity and its desolation, in bringing the soul that light, which, as we say, it receives there from God, we shall quote that passage of David, wherein he clearly describes the great power which is in this night for bringing the soul this lofty knowledge of God. He says then thus, In the desert land, waterless, dry, and pathless, I appeared before thee, that I might see thy virtue and thy glory. It is a wondrous thing that David should say here that the means and the preparation for his knowledge of the glory of God were not the spiritual delights and the many pleasures which he had experienced, but the aridities and detachments of his sensual nature, which is here to be understood by the dry and deserted land. 
No less wondrous is it that he should describe as the road to his perception and vision of the virtue of God, not the divine meditations and conceptions of which he had often made use, but of his being unable to form any conception of God or to walk by meditation produced by imaginary consideration, which is here to be understood by the pathless land. So that the means to a knowledge of God and of oneself is this dark night with its aridities and voids, although it leads not to a knowledge of him, of the same plentitude and abundance that comes from the other night of the spirit, since this is only, as it were, the beginning of that other. Likewise, from the aridities and voids of this night of the desire, the soul draws spiritual humility, which is the contrary virtue to the first capital sin, which, as we said, is spiritual pride. Through this humility, which is acquired by the said knowledge of self, the soul is purged from all those imperfections whereinto it fell with respect to that sin of pride in the time of its prosperity. For it sees itself so dry and miserable that the idea never even occurs to it that it's making better progress than others or outstripping them as it believed itself to be doing before. On the contrary, it recognizes that others are making better progress than itself. And hence arises the love of its neighbors, for it esteems them and judges them not as it was wont to do aforetime, when it saw that itself had great fervor and others not so. It is aware only of its own wretchedness, which it keeps before its eyes to such an extent that it never forgets it, nor takes occasion to set its eyes on anyone else. This was described wonderfully by David when he was in this night, in these words. I was dumb and was humbled and kept silence from good things and my sorrow was renewed. This, he says, because it seemed to him that the good was in his soul, which had so completely departed. And not only did he neither speak nor find any language concerning it, but with respect to the good of others, he was likewise dumb because of his grief at the knowledge of his misery. In this condition, again, Souls become submissive and obedient upon the spiritual road, for when they see their own misery, not only do they hear what is taught them, but they even desire that anyone soever who may set them on the way and tell them what they ought to do. The effective presumption which they sometimes had in their prosperity is taken from them. And finally, They are swept away from them on this road, all other the imperfections which we noted above with respect to that first sin, which is spiritual pride. Thank you for joining me today. The peace of Christ be with you.